The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Casting new doubt, a vaccine watchdog calling out AstraZeneca's blockbuster trial results over what it calls some questionable data. Top-ranked biotech analyst Matthew Harrison weighs in. $1.9 trillion? That may have just been a drop in the bucket. Details on the massive spending plan the White House is now preparing to pitch. It is not just talk of money, it's talk about money that may drive trading today as both Jay Powell and Janet Yellen will testify in front of Congress. Tensions with Beijing heating up, China firing back over a slew of sanctions in response to human rights violations. And you won't have to wait a fortnight. GameStop results, they're out today. Can the troubled retailer really turn it around and maybe get more love from the Reddit rebellion? It is Tuesday, March 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world. You may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Nice to be back with you on early morning here about 5 a.m. on the East Coast of the United States. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's see right now if the momentum will keep up in the markets coming from Monday's big move in stocks. And right now it is indicated that it will not, but not by a lot. We are in the red across the board, but Dow futures down less than 100 right now. NASDAQ futures, in fact, the fair value is pretty much flat to slightly up. So let's say the bias a little more to the downside, but hardly any kind of a done deal. All the major averages were up on Monday. Some, of course, more than others, but a pretty good day all around. But it was a very good day for some of the beaten up tech stocks. The NASDAQ 100 up 1.7% to start its week. In fact, 88 of the NASDAQ 100 finished higher, led by many of the semiconductor names, which had really been hit hard the last three or four weeks or so. Names like ASML, KLA, and Applied Materials leading the market. What has been driving trading has been bonds, specifically the yield on the 10-year note. Bond yields did tick down a bit yesterday. Right now, they're ticking down again to 1.65%. Well, around the world, it was a mostly lower overnight session in Asia, with the Hang Seng and Hong Kong falling more than 1%. Europe, they're just getting their trading day started And they are, kind of like our futures, lower across the board. Not huge declines, but down about three and four-tenths of one percent. Well, as always, we've got so much more in the markets and your money coming up. But your top story stays with the pandemic. And a developing story right now over yesterday's blockbuster AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine trial results. Bertha Coombs has more on this developing story. Bertha, good morning. 
Good morning, Brian. Another wrinkle on this AstraZeneca vaccine. A U.S. health agency is expressing concern that AstraZeneca may have included outdated information from a clinical trial of its COVID-19 vaccine, potentially casting doubt over yesterday's published results. Now, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, in part oversees and monitored clinical trials in the U.S. and issued a statement saying, quote, we urge the company to work with the data Safety Monitoring Board to review the efficacy data and ensure the most accurate, up-to-date efficacy data be made public as quickly as possible, unquote. AstraZeneca did not immediately respond to a CNBC request for comment. The statement comes just one day after the findings of a large stage three U.S. trial showed the vaccine developed alongside University of Oxford is 79 percent effective in preventing symptomatic illness and 100 percent effective against severe disease and hospitalization. Now, to date, more than nine million AstraZeneca doses have been administered across the EU and the U.K. where it has been approved. Brian? Yeah, I mean, the, the results yesterday were stunning. I mean, uh, bizarrely, a lot of the headlines focused on that 79% number. I mean, if asymptomatic, I mean, if I get sick and don't know it, do I care? What we care about is outcomes. We don't want people to get really sick. We certainly don't want people right. to die. The results surprising some, especially with all the talk about the blood clot issue in Europe as well. It sounds like this, I don't want to call it a fight, Bertha, but this story may not be over yet. No, and, you know, there were issues with their data early on during their trials as well. So this is this vaccine development has been clouded for several months now, but it does appear to be working in Europe. So you have the contrast of a vaccine that does appear to be working and then these questions about the data. All right, Bertha. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. One thing about that AstraZeneca vaccine, by the way, is that it is relatively cheap to make and easy to store. So a lot of global hope is on this one as well, maybe spreading it out to places that do not have the vaccine rollout like we have right now. Anyway, lots more to do when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, why the party may be coming to an end for one of this year's hottest stocks. There's a little hint. Okay, it's GameStop. I just told you. All right, plus. Much more on that news, the AstraZeneca phase three trial results. Top-ranked biotech analyst Matthew Harrison is here. He will weigh in not only on that, but where we stand in the fight against the so-called variants. And later on, how Square and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey just got $2.5 million richer. Dropping the bucket to him, but a lot to most of us. We'll hear more about that as Worldwide Exchange rolls on right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. 
Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. All right, welcome back. Well, it certainly has been one of, if not the most talked about stocks of the year. And today, GameStop will give its new crop of Robinhood investors a fresh look underneath the hood, so to speak, in its first results since becoming one of Wall Street's hottest and arguably most controversial stocks. But let's talk more now about this and where GameStop and what it may signal about the overall market. Joining us now is Babelfish Analytics founding partner, Jeff Alexander. Jeff, I, if, I never would have imagined that little old GameStop, you know, the mall-based retailer where you go and buy video games, could have not only become so important, I guess, to itself, but so important to the overall stock market. What do you make of what's going on with GameStop? Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me on. And, and, and I absolutely agree. I don't even remember the last time I've been in a GameStop and, and my son's a gamer. So you know, to me, it was just a little store that's out there in malls that, you know, we walked past when we were going to malls. But yes, it has become the most important stock in the stock market this year. And what it taught us, um, everybody's dissatisfied. Everybody's dissatisfied with the current market structure. Um, mutual funds, individual investors, regulators, politicians, and quite frankly, even market makers. And what this stems from and the problem is that we're dealing with a regulatory structure that dates back many, many years, and it's just not well suited for the marketplace today. So last time I came on, we spoke about the effect on institutional investors. And what I told you was that the cost in retail-oriented names had increased by up to three times, in, you know, especially in names that were you know, retail heavy. Now, I didn't talk about individual investors. And I think it's really important to talk about individual investors. A lot of the frustration, a lot of the congressional hearings, what they're talking about is a lack of transparency. Am I getting the best price if I'm a retail investor? And we've got these regulatory reports that people look at. They're called 605 and 606 reports. They date back over 20 years. Um, they're, they don't apply anymore. Yeah. They're very hard to interpret. And that's a lot of the frustration. Nobody really knows what they're getting. So we decided. Yeah, I know, we, and we've, <clears throat> Jeff, we've had, Jeff, let me jump in here. We've had, we've had hearings on GameStop, okay? Yep. Do you, you know, and we've learned, and I think we all are smart enough, especially if you're watching CNBC at 5.15 in the morning, you're smart enough to know this. No cost to you doesn't always mean something is, quote, free. We have learned that. Do you think no that cost. despite all the, the sturm und drang of the hearings that anything around market structure is going to change specifically around the idea of payment for order flow? Will that change? I do not believe that a regulatory solution will come out of this. If a regulatory solution does come out of this, it will not come out for years. It will miss the mark and it will have unintended consequences. What I do believe is that a commercial solution will come out and provide an alternative to payment for order flow, which will quantitatively prove that retail investors are able to get better execution quality than they're currently getting now. But a regulatory solution. Let me ask you this, because we, Jeff, I want to jump in again. I apologize. We always talk about the the, the Reddit trader, the retail trader, maybe buying 75 shares on Robinhood. I get that. Many of our viewers 
are going to be buying mutual funds. They're not buying individual equities. Those mutual funds also buy the equities on behalf of the fund. Okay, that's much more prevalent. Do you think that the average, you know, Fidelity or Vanguard or what American Century, whatever the fund family is, do you think they're getting best price and best execution for their dollar? Well, our research indicated that they absolutely are not, because what you were doing is you were taking, in some of these names, 40% of the trading volume out of the marketplace, and they can't interact with that. And if you can't compete for that market pool, if you can't compete for that 40%, you're dealing with a smaller pool, you're trying to buy the same amount, smaller pool, it's like anything else, supply and demand, and yes, they are getting much higher costs, their returns are being harmed. That, that is without question. Jeff Alexander, Babelfish, Jeff... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in on you, my friend. We got to got to move along. A lot of news on this Tuesday morning, but an important topic. Look forward to getting you back on. See if there are any changes no. to market structure. Certainly, the GameStop is sort of the the lever that's moving a lot of other bigger things. Jeff, take care. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, you're welcome. All right, let's turn now back to that big news surrounding AstraZeneca's vaccine and head over to London. Juliana Tadabam has been covering the story from the beginning and. You know, Juliana, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions here, I think, in the state side, because obviously it's it's a UK developed product. It's gotten a lot of attention over there. Mm. Suddenly we get these amazing results that have come out. A lot of people I, I see it on my social media feed simply do not believe it. What kind of coverage and attention is this getting on your side of the Atlantic? Well, Brian, uh, good morning. This is certainly getting a ton of attention over here. And just yesterday, I was uh, uh, joining Lex to talk about uh, AstraZeneca's release of the first look at the interim phase three results from their U.S. trial. And analysts cheered these results, 79% efficacy at preventing symptomatic COVID and 100% efficacy at preventing severe COVID and hospitalization. Now, overnight, we got a statement from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases over in the U.S. Of course, the Institute had by Dr. Fauci. And in the release, they said AstraZeneca may have included outdated trial information in its release yesterday. This was a four-sentence release from the National Institute saying that late last night, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which is the organization which oversees and monitors clinical trials, uh, notified the Institute, along with BARDA and AstraZeneca, that it was concerned by information released by the company in their uh, initial data yesterday. Yesterday, uh, they expressed concern that Astra may have included outdated information, which may have provided an incomplete view of the efficacy data. Now, this is a very inconclusive. They used the word may twice in the release. And I just emphasize this because we really don't have a lot of information yet. But it has cast doubt on the uh, very positive efficacy data that came through yesterday. Now, the uh, National Institute has urged the company to work with the Data and Safety Monitoring Board to review view the efficacy data. And surely we will be hearing more soon, as AstraZeneca confirmed yesterday, they plan to file for emergency use authorization with the FDA in the coming weeks. And that's where we would expect to get a lot more data. So this is a developing story for sure, Brian. Yeah. And you've got these agencies, you know, that that arguably most of our audience had never heard about pre-pandemic now sort of going after each other in the United States and maybe even globally as well. And why, Julian, I sort of referenced this earlier, and please correct me if I'm wrong, why this vaccine in particular is important to the world is that it is relatively inexpensive to make. It is relatively easy to transport from a temperature perspective. It's a pretty hardy 
if you will, vaccine. In other words, it could take a lot of bumps and a lot of bruising and still come out okay. There's a lot of global help, especially in hope among poor nations on this AstraZeneca candidate. Is there not? Absolutely. And this is this vaccine was billed early on from the start as the vaccine for the planet. It is cheap. It's easy to distribute. And there's a lot of it. But the vaccine has been mired in controversy, some baseless and some more founded right from the start. The initial data that we got around this vaccine was a little bit mixed and wasn't as clear cut as some of the data that we got from the mRNA vaccine. So that from Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, One thing on that front I would note is remember AstraZeneca came into this a little bit late. They partnered with the University of Oxford, which had already been working on the vaccine. AstraZeneca is not a vaccine maker primarily. It's a global pharmaceutical giant, but vaccines are not their specialty. So this vaccine has captured a lot of negative sentiment. Uh, There's also been a lot of political elements here in Europe. There's been a very public row between the European Union and AstraZeneca. The company has been delayed in delivering the promised doses uh, that they had pledge to deliver to the EU. So this is a very uh, political story. So we have to separate what is a bad PR from what is actually scientific evidence. And at this stage, today's uh, news is certainly a PR issue for AstraZeneca, but it remains to be seen whether this will translate into actual scientific or medical uh, implications or medical issue for the vaccine itself. Juliana, are you suggesting that parts of this pandemic may have actually become politicized? I mean, even over there, I... (laughs) I, I can't quite get my finger Who'd around have thought? that. And maybe it's a little bit, maybe it's a little bit too early for that. By the way, Juliana Tadabon, thank you very much. Just a quick aside, folks. On my social media, Twitter at SollyCBC, and also LinkedIn, I posted the results of a survey out of the Brookings Institution about Republican and Democratic views around COVID. Here's the non-news. Both sides view the pandemic very differently. Here's what's surprising, and you can go check it out for yourself. Both parties wildly wrong on pretty much every single metric when it comes to COVID, whether or not it's risk by age group or how many people end up in the hospital, it affects policy. You've got to see the results of the survey. Check out my social media. I'll repost it again right now if I can. Everybody is pretty much wrong about everything. Just check it out. All right. On deck. In a year where it seems that anybody, but not me or our show, but pretty much everybody else has a SPAC, why we work remains a tough sell. Today's big number, $83.4 billion. That's how much IPOs of SPACs have raised so far this year, according to SPAC Research. That's more than the sector raised in all of 2020. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Francis Rivera with your news headlines. Ten people are dead following a mass shooting at a Colorado supermarket, the nation's second one in less than a week. Police say a gunman opened fire at around 2.30 p.m. local time and that a suspect is in custody. There's no word yet on a possible motive. Among the victims, Boulder Officer Eric Talley, an 11-year-old veteran of the force and father of seven, who was one of the first to respond to the shooting. After weeks of daily increases, the accelerating cost of a gallon of gas couldn't be topping off. In California, the average price for a gallon is roughly $3.88. That's a dollar more than the national average, which has held steady for five days. Still, that's 25 cents more than last month and 74 cents more than this time last year. However, gas prices could significantly increase come summertime. History is being made in Boston this week. City Council President Jim, uh, excuse me, Kim Janey has now assumed the role of acting mayor. That makes her the first woman and the first person of color to lead the city. A formal swearing-in ceremony is expected tomorrow. She will finish out Marty Walsh's term, who resigned after he was confirmed as President Biden's labor secretary. And those are your headlines. Worldwide Exchange is back right after the break. New this morning, a vaccine watchdog calling out AstraZeneca's vaccine trial results. The results were stunning, but one group is concerned. Top-ranked biotech analyst Matthew Harrison will weigh in on that and where we stand in hopefully winding down this pandemic. Geopolitics in focus. Tension between the U.S. and China on high, taking a new twist with a sanctions turn. And did you think the latest stimulus plan was a lot of spending? Wait until you hear what the White House may be planning to drop now. About three trillion new dollars on bridges and renewable energy. It is Tuesday, March 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. It is 526 here in the East Coast of the United States. Hope you're having a good start to your day or a good end to your day if you're watching from Asia. I am Brian Sullivan, and good to be back with you after a little bit of time off the dial. All right, we're going to get to all that stuff we just talked about. But first, as always, let's get a check on the markets and your money. Futures not giving us a lot of indication if we're going to get a follow-through from yesterday's big rally. Doesn't look like it right now. Dow futures off 114, implied open down about 107. You can see the fair value on the NASDAQ futures actually slightly in the green. So tech stocks may hold up a little bit better than the rest of the market today. Certainly, that is what happened on yesterday. In fact, if you didn't pay attention, and I know you can't maybe every day pay attention to the stock market all day long, but we kind of do. The NASDAQ 100 up 1.7% to start the week. A very strong move for a lot of the technology names, particularly semiconductor stocks, which had been hit the last couple of weeks, they had a nice run to begin their week as well. Much of the market's move is being dominated by bond yields. And as bond yields move up, these value name or tech stocks have come down and vice versa. Bond yields right now, they're actually at 165. So they have ticked down a bit, not helping futures. But we will, of course, watch that all day here for you on CNBC. All right, now to your top story, potentially big new spending plans by the Biden administration. No, we are not talking about the recent $1.9 trillion COVID-related relief and bailout bill. This new one, and it is a new one, is potentially up to $3 
trillion dollars of new money on infrastructure and other progressive priorities. Let's get to more now on what we know and what we don't know. Bertha Coombs is back on this. And Bertha, what do we know about this potential plan? Well, even as the White House is going on a tour to talk about that $1.9 trillion bill, NBC has learned that the White House is considering several options to pass an estimated $3 trillion economic recovery proposal, including splitting it into two bills. Early reports had said President Biden's advisors will present a plan as soon as this week. The proposal would target areas including improving transportation systems, as well as boosting manufacturing, reducing carbon emissions and investments in universal pre-K and community college. Meantime, Goldman Sachs CEO is speaking out over complaints by junior bankers of burnout from intense workloads. In a voice note to Goldman employees, David Solomon said management would work harder to give the bankers Saturdays off and add employees from other divisions to help the busiest teams. The move follows that viral survey by a group of first-year analysts stressing 100-hour work weeks amid a boom in deals fueled by SPACs. And Fed Chairman Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will go before the House Financial Services Committee today to testify on the economy's recovery. Yellen expected to give an optimistic outlook, projecting a growing economy and possibly full employment next year, citing President Biden's stimulus package. Not sure which one of those. Powell, meanwhile, will stress that while the economy is much improved, the recovery is still far from complete. Likely to get some questions over the new proposed stimulus package, even though it's not out yet, Brian. Big, big dollar amounts. Yeah, well, three trillion. I, I, I guess I'm old enough to remember when a three trillion was a lot of money or maybe it still is. I mean, they're going to talk about raising taxes on corporations and individuals making more than 400000 a year, which, which is fine if that's what your thing is. But they're talking about raising like $11 billion a year for 10 years on the individual taxes. That's not, it's not a lot. Yeah, they're also looking at boosting audits to try to catch some of the money that falls through the cracks. Yeah, all that sounds good. Doesn't anywhere near equal $3 trillion, but But hey, those are bigger numbers for people smarter than I am to figure out. Bertha, we'll see you in a bit. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. All right, so if that $3 trillion or anything close to it looks like it can get through Congress, likely largely straight along party lines again, of course, could it goose the stock market even more? Or could debt concerns, all this money, remember most of it is deficit financed, eventually hold us back? Let's talk about that and everything else that may impact your money in the markets. Joined now by Delano Sapporo, founder and financial advisor, at New Street Advisors. Uh, Delano, there's a lot to unpack here in these headlines. Certainly, you got the testimony from Powell and Yellen. You got this potential plan. We can worry about debts down the road, maybe our kids and grandkids or who knows. But if we get a potential $3 trillion infrastructure or whatever bill, you think that's just going to goose the stock market even further? Hard to kind of see how it doesn't. Yeah, 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 Brian, you're exactly right. And we actually 
think, you know, we're not going to worry about it down the road. I think the market is worrying about it now in the sense of inflation. So you're going to see the inflation numbers rising. Uh, if you're looking at the CPI, it's ticking up month over month. And what that means is, you know, people are going to put their money, investors are going to put their money into earning assets. And so we're seeing the inflation number rising. We're seeing the prices goods rising. I think that the packages were needed, right? But I think the timing, especially in the, the last relief package, was a little bit off. I saw some of my clients that were hanging on prior and kind of figured things out. And now they have the new stimulus package that, or excuse me, the new stimulus uh, check that was given to them. They're saying, hey, I would either put this into the market or into crypto. So those inflation numbers are going to come up uh, based on what we're doing uh, with, with, with printing money and, and helping people, which was needed, especially. Yeah. And what else are you buying for your clients? Are you one of these believers, Delano, in these quote, and I hate the term reopen because so much of the United States is actually open, just not here in the Northeast and, and Illinois and California. But are you buying some of these quote reopen stocks, you know, the, the airlines, the just betting it all on Royal Caribbean? <laughs> <laughs> Not on Royal Caribbean, no. What we're doing is spreading out the risk. So we're buying ETFs uh, for clients when it comes to the reopening trade, whether it's just general market um, ETFs or also industrial ETFs. I do like some of the trades when we're thinking of what the pent-up demand is in. So you see a pent-up demand with people wanting to have experiences, whether it's going back to Disney parks, uh, whether it's traveling to their favorite destination that they didn't get a chance to do last year. Um, and so that's where you want to hedge your bets and actually go into when it comes to investing. Uh, but as far as, you know, some of these plays where it's, you know, whether it's the Royal Caribbean, those things were spreading out the, the bets with, the, you know, ETFs when it comes to those travel plays. All right, Delano Sapporo. Delano, it's a real pleasure to get you back on. We're looking at Disney. We're looking at some of the, let's call it the softer side of yes. the reopening, not aggressively yes. going after the love boat. Delano, it's a real pleasure to have you back on. We'll <laughs> see you soon. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you, Brian. You too. All right, well, it's not just about new spending programs. Geopolitics also in focus. China responding to sanctions brought by the EU, UK, Canada, and, of course, the United States against two officials over human rights abuses against ethnic minority Uyghurs in China. Now, Beijing not taking it sitting down. They're hitting back with broad sanctions against the EU, including individual lawmakers, diplomats, institutes, and even families banning their businesses from trading with China. So how does this all play out? With more insight, let's bring in DeWardrick McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global, CNBC contributor, and a former East Asia and China official in the Defense Department under President Obama. Dwardrick, uh, where does this, I mean, listen, they were supposed to have a photo op in Alaska a few days ago, maybe an hour, shake hands, kind of broke down into an almost shouting match. A uh, little posturing maybe by China here with a new administration, kind of testing the waters, see where it goes. Where does it go? Well, look, I don't think that the relationship between the U.S. and China is going to get any better anytime soon. A lot of these frictions in the relationship are fairly set and neither side are prepared to move off the mark. I also don't expect it to get much worse than it is. I don't think it can get much worse than it is. But with respect to the European Union and the U.K., I think this was a big surprise for China. They thought that certainly Biden would try to bring the alliance together and coordinated action against China. They didn't expect for that to happen this soon and for it to be this effective. I mean, we had the UK and the EU all coordinating on transatlantic sanctions against Xinjiang. This is what the Chinese feared, quite frankly, and still fear, is that Biden will be able to pull off this hat trick of bringing together 
the Asian allies and the transatlantic allies in a cooperation against China. And China was just not prepared. I think it rattled some cages in Beijing for sure. Yeah, that that quad you speak of with Japan and, and India and Australia sort of kind of ringing that ring of fire somewhat, if you will. All right, DeWardrick, so so not getting any better is one thing. To your point, getting worse is another. Do you think it just doesn't get better? Or could our relations with China, second biggest economy in the world, could they degrade further? And if so, what exactly would that look like? Yeah, very good question. Look, again, I think for the U.S. and China relationship, that's fairly set. But I do think things can get a lot worse between China and the UK and China and the EU. Uh, and China is really looking to use its market and what it believes is the, US, is the UK and the EU's attraction to that market to really apply pressure uh, to those places and say, do you really want to follow Biden in the US down this path, given how important your economy, uh, our economy is to you? So it, it's, it's yet to be seen how hard the the EU will go at China. Will the investment treaty, for example, mm-hmm. hold or, or will it be unraveled? I, I'm unsure, but I, I think we are certainly in for a lot more frictions across the Atlantic with China. I think the U.S. and China's relationship is fairly set. The Biden administration is going to continue to develop its China policy in a mm-hmm. way that meets China where it is now versus where they hope that it might be at some point. But what power do we have? We, we have tariffs. By the way, we've showed record volumes of imports from China. The shipping container problems that I highlighted a couple of weeks ago in South Carolina. We are importing so much stuff from China. It'll blow your mind. And we forget that much of that, I think 75 percent, still has a tariff on it. In other words, nobody cares. The tariffs aren't doing anything. What kind of power do we have, really? Yeah, I think to be fair, most of those most of those tariffs were not very targeted in places that would impact China. I think a lot of it has impacted us, as you will point out. But I think export controls on technology, particularly emerging technologies, things that China needs to continue to, to develop its economy. I think you're going to start to see more of that sort of action. So more targeted, more surgical action mm-hmm. from the U.S. in places that can hurt China, not places that will hurt the U.S. when we when we level these actions are what we're likely to see. And I think increased coordination and global pressure on China does, as we've seen by their reaction, have an impact on China. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that as we move as we move out. All right, DeWardrick, it's still kind of odd to hear the EU and the U.K. because we forget they are Rex, they are now separate negotiating entities. UK out there on the world stage alone once again. DeWardrick McNeil, great to have your viewpoints. We'll talk to you again, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right, take care. You're welcome. All right, coming up, the RBI is back. And the staggering figure about just how much money is sloshing around the world and the global markets, it is random and hopefully, yes, interesting. But first, as we had to break, Quick hit on some of your other top stories on this Tuesday. WeWork disclosing it lost more than $3 billion more billion last year. According to reports, the office sharing startup revealing the steep losses amid a presentation to potential investors as a part of its push to try to lock in a SPAC. 
Microsoft reportedly in talks to buy Discord for more than $10 billion. According to Bloomberg, Xbox chief Phil Spencer is leading the conversations with the gaming-focused chat software company on that potential deal. And Jack Dorsey getting in on the non-fungible token craze. NFTs selling his first tweet for nearly $3 million as a digital NFT. WTH, we're back after this. Well, welcome back, and I am back, and so so is the RBI, the most random but interesting thing you're going to hear all day, or not, but this is pretty darn interesting, and it shows two things. Number one, why stocks just kind of keep going up, and two, just how much money is sloshing around the globe. According to EPFR research, $65 billion went into stock funds last week, another $8-plus billion into bonds. They have a chart as well. And the punch off the pandemic lockdown lows was powerful. Thank you, central banks. Look at that. And it's not just here in the U.S. Money is going into all kinds of global risk assets, from Russian stocks to Turkish bonds. Literally, EPFR says those assets are seeing huge inflows. In India, don't even talk to me about India. Stock investors love it. Posting its longest stock fund inflow into Indian equities in more than three years. Also seeing a big-time bid lately? It's not just U.S. stocks. It's Slovak bonds. Yep, there is so much money sloshing around the world that investors are pretty much chasing everything, even Slovak bonds. And if Slovak bonds aren't interesting for you, I got nothing. Hopefully that is random but interesting, and in no way am I knocking Slovak bonds. Full disclaimer. Well, the recent surge in SPACs dominating the market conversation, certainly on our end as well, creating plenty of opportunity as well, but not just for the retail investor. Some of the so-called activist investors also getting in on the blank check bandwagon. Imagine that. Looking to capitalize on their popularity. Leslie Picker joining us now with more, apparently not on Slovak bonds, which stinks, but on the SPACs, which is probably a little more interesting. I would disagree. I thought Slovak bonds, what you're, you know, you were saying about the popularity there was very interesting, but there's also popularity in the SPAC world, as we know. Uh, but one area that there actually hasn't been a lot of popularity recently is traditional shareholder activism. This is, you know, buying stock in companies and pushing for management to make changes. Instead, these hedge fund managers are finding opportunities in, well, you guessed it, SPACs. They've raised their own SPACs. They've invested in SPAC merger financing through pipes or even just SPAC stock and warrants through the public markets. But industry experts say that the SPAC boom over the long run will actually create billions of dollars worth of traditional activism opportunities. We're going to have all these newly public companies with five years of projections that they have to live up to. And that's a dream come true for activists, right? Because we're going to have to have all these guys living up to these expectations. And every time they have a misstep or a stumble over the next few years, the activists are going to come in and say, hey, you should have been cutting costs more. We should have a new management team in. You don't have the right board of directors. 
So just to clarify, unlike IPOs, when a company goes public via SPAC, they'll usually actually share several years' worth of financial projections. The types of details that would be included in, say, a regular way merger are often disclosed in conjunction with a SPAC merger as well. Now, that, of course, can set high standards, however, and if they're unmet and the stock falls, it could provide low-hanging fruit for activists. We're already seeing a derivation of this phenomenon with the wave of short sellers that have recently been targeting recent SPAC mergers. Now, Freshfields Klingsberg says he's urging his clients to start employing defense structures now to fend off a wave of activism later. These can include SPACs with classified boards and multiple classes of stock. Brian. Yeah, I mean, is there any sign, Leslie, that the SPAC craze, I don't know, craze, frenzy, uh, whatever you want to call it, is there any sign that it's slowing down at all? At some point, you run out of big-name sponsors, or maybe everybody just has 20 SPACs. Like Chamath will have, like, 50. Yeah, I don't see any sign that it's slowing down per se, but you are seeing almost like a pull forward effect. I was told that if the SEC could actually process the number of filings that were supposed to be coming out right now or that there was demand to actually be listing right now, that there would be multiples more specs than we're even even seeing now. Now, I think part of that is this idea that a lot of people just want to get them out before, you know, things do fall off a cliff. There are starting you know, we're starting to see some cracks show with, you know, what I mentioned with regard to short sellers and some uh, SPACs are, are selling off in the public markets, things like that, uh, that people are like, OK, I'm seeing some, you know, danger on the horizon for this very lucrative market. I'm going to go now rather than wait to the end of the yeah. year. All right. Great stuff there, Leslie Picker. And we're showing the CNBC SPAC 50. Next hit, Slovak bonds, Moldova, triple B minus. <laughs> Leslie Picker. Thank you. See you soon. All right, on deck. The important new question surrounding AstraZeneca's vaccine amid its push to get that treatment into America's top-ranked analyst Matthew Harrison lays out what it may mean for the U.S. vaccine push and where we really stand right now with the variants. And a reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. It's available on all the normal podcasting platforms, picture not included. It's called Worldwide Exchange. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. It is time now for your hopefully daily update on where we stand actually in the vaccine rollout. And the pace here continues pretty strong overall and much better certainly than in some other places than others. Well, 25% of the U.S. population of adults has now had at least one vaccination dose. 69% of the most at-risk population, those over 65, have gotten at least one dose as well. Very good news. North Dakota, South Dakota, and New Mexico lead the way for the states as far as a percentage of those vaccinated and maybe, according to some like Fundstrat and others, are close to what people may view as herd or population immunity, those who have been exposed to COVID as well and recovered. But a developing story in AstraZeneca this morning. Yesterday, we announced that their vaccine candidate, which has gotten some bad press, particularly overseas, was shown to be 100% effective in preventing serious illness or death. But now a U.S. health agency is expressing concern that the company may have included outdated information from a clinical trial of its vaccine, potentially casting doubt over yesterday's published results. A statement from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases 
which oversees and monitors clinical trials and is headed up by Dr. Fauci. In the U.S. reads in part, quote, we urge the company to work with the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, another agency, to review the efficacy data and ensure the most accurate, up-to-date efficacy data be made public as quickly as possible. AstraZeneca did not immediately respond to a CBC request for comment. Joining us now to talk about more about this and the vaccine rollout generally and some of these variants is top-ranked Morgan Stanley biotech analyst Matthew Harrison, him and his team doing spectacular work on this. Matthew, you know, I, people have vaccine hesitancy in America, and it's kind of easy to see why in some cases. We're getting all this conflicting data. It works 100%. It may not work at all. Blood clots, no, they're not a worry. Where do you and your team stand, if anywhere, on the AstraZeneca news? I think right now, right, you know, you just have to take things at, at, at face value um, and, and we'll wait and see if, if, if anything changes. I guess the way that I've looked at things is for people in the U.S., at least, we already have enough supply of vaccines between the three approved vaccines um, to cover the entire U.S. population. And so uh, having another vaccine will be helpful and could accelerate um, our ability to get to enough people vaccinated, but we don't need it. Yeah, some very important perspective. Maybe AstraZeneca more the vaccine for the world because it's cheap to make and easy to store. So where do we stand in our vaccine rollout, Matthew? We haven't heard a lot about J&J, surprisingly enough. We talk a lot about Pfizer and Moderna. read an article yesterday, some people wondering where exactly all the J&J doses actually are, stuck in a warehouse somewhere. Where do we stand right now? So we're, we're dosing somewhere between two and two and a half million people a day. Um, from a supply picture, we can probably get up to, to four million people a day, though you know, we'll have to see if we have enough vaccinators to reach that number. But as long as we stay on the same trajectory uh, that we're on, we could get to 75 percent, which is what I sort of view as the herd immunity threshold of people that are 12 years and older, which will be the, the population uh, where you'll have an approval by, by midsummer. So um, I think, you know, the U.S. remains on a pretty strong trajectory um, with the supply that they have from, from, the, from the three vaccines right now. And a lot of scary terms that are floating around, Matthew, variants. Some people call them mutants. I mean, you know, they're, they're taking over. They're becoming the dominant strain. All viruses do mutate. We know that. These vaccines appear to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, pretty effective on some of these other strains as well. How serious of an issue are these so-called variants, particularly in states like Michigan and New York, that are seeing sort of this biggest turn up in cases Minnesota included as well? Right. So variants um, are expected. And as an example, the the UK variant is the most prevalent in the U.S. right now. It's about 30 percent of cases in the U.S., Vaccines are, are, are quite effective against the UK variant. Other variants that, that carry this mutation, the so-called E484K mutation, which is present in the South African mutation and maybe present in, in, in the New York variant, as well as some of the other variants that are, that are in the US, um, that may confer um, a, a little bit lower efficacy of the vaccine. But I think the important point is that in the data that we've seen in South Africa, um, where you, where you have a, a you know, so-called potentially escape variant, um, vaccines still prevent the most serious disease. And so 
I think from a public health standpoint, that's what's most important. Um, so right now, vaccines are still are still working against variants, and we'll just have to see if other variants come up that may require additional attention. I'd also just make a comment that the vaccine companies are working on variant-specific strains, and so um, there will be vaccines against those variants if needed. That is huge news. Matthew Harrison as well, kind of a race variants against vaccines. Matthew Harrison, we appreciate your views. I know I don't think you've slept in about a year, but we appreciate you coming on and getting up early for us. Matthew, best to you and your team. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Cutting through the noise there with the actual data. The vaccines do work. Maybe a little less, but they work. All right, that's it for us. We're going to be back to work tomorrow right here at 5 a.m. on Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you then. Squawk of the gang picking up the coverage next. Dow Futures off about 100. Have a great day forever. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.